Welcome to Arvid's Almanac, a podcast hosted by queer settlers navigating decolonial healing through herbal medicine and myth, queerness and magic, astrology and ancestral connection. My name is Rue McDonald. I'm a non-binary witch, place and story-based learning facilitator uh, through the Queer Directions Learning Center here on Lekwungen territories, so-called Victoria, BC. I'm Micah McDonald, they, he, a clinical herbalist, ecologist, and writer living in Abenaki territory in Vermont. I'm Kenzie. I use pronouns ZK, they, she, an intuitive herbalist, sex posse pleasure activist, gender fluid mermaid, mother of a Scorpio siren, and steward of Wild Faith Wellness and the Sex Herbalist. Welcome. This episode of Arvid's Almanac, we have Sean Fitzgerald, who we're really excited to have here on the show. Um, and yeah, we we should get right into it. So Sean, do you mind giving a brief intro to who you are, where you are, and yeah, what you do? Sean Fitzgerald, Isanam Dum, Tame Goni, Sigweltat, Litu Nagal, Akneel Moran Guelgogum, is a lean terme, le folklore, August mythology, Aseren, Babralum, Nias Mo Guelga, Alert Lat, Babeder, La Wan. So, um, first off, I'd like to say a thank you very much for inviting me here today and to chat with you. Um, it was um, Laurel from Unfeathered Wood taught me first about your podcast and I started listening. Then a few days later, Lucy from Wild Awake told me about your podcast, still listened. And it's so good to hear your voices, the mindfulness, the deep thinking that goes into your words. Um, it's refreshing. And of course, it makes you think. So it's only an honor to have all your written words in Lucy and Moisine and journal, Ermid's journal. And we both love the link between us all. Um, so, yeah, very happy to be here. Um, I'll give you a little introduction to myself, Osberla. Uh, so, yeah, my name is Sean Fitzgerald. I'm here in the Gweltucht in Donegal in Ireland. And I draw, I'm an illustrator. I do write as well, but uh, I'm mainly an illustrator on uh, Irish mythology and folklore. Uh, I have worked on various books, but uh, I, my most known one is The Last Battle of Moitura which is based around Lu Lafada um, here and the battle between the Fomorians of Tory Island. So as I'm talking to you, where I'm sitting right now, uh, Tory Island is in front of me. On the left of me here is Tohabegli, which used to be known as Tolalu, which would have been a mound dedicated to Lu Lafada, the god of light. On the right-hand side of me here is Mokish Mountain, and on top of Muckish is a cairn called um, Maeve's Cairn. Now, of course, everyone knows Sligo for Maeve's Cairn. Um, but in Sligo, that's Maeve's burial ground, where she is standing facing her en enemies in Ulster. Whereas he in Ulster, this is like a, a worship cairn. So the goddess Maeve, as well as Lou, would have been uh, very much uh, part of the worship of the native people here um went off on a tangent there on the introduction but that's the general gist perfect thank you so much and we're so honored to have you um 
we both are fans of yours. So this is really like really exciting uh, for us. I know. Ditto. Just so excited. And it's an honor to have you here. And I'm excited to play and hear your stories. And yeah, just make space to um, share where you at or in, in your journey. Um, so I'm excited for this conversation. Brilliant. Thank you. And um, speaking of sharing stories, do you mind um, starting us off with a, a tale for us? Sure. So, um, okay. So I was just explaining where I live and what's around me. So my interest always includes landscape. So I would have an interest in place names in relation to our stories. Uh, they always come into play. So um, now I'm not a storyteller but I do tell stories linked into landscape. So my only experience of doing that has never been in a podcast type of situation. So normally I'm walking and I'm pointing at various um, mountains to the ocean, to Tory Island. So it's a very different format. So as I'm talking, I might have to explain certain areas and in, in the landscape. So to give you an idea um lucy who is a uh, uh, does um wild awake and who does ermit's journal with me um lucy i went out with lucy on um the wild awakenings so uh, we went out four days with a big group and so what i was doing was as we walked um i would link in places now it could be from evictions to mythology to history um so during the time we're walking, it's that's what I'm used to. So um, we'd walk and I would point. So um, growing up, uh, normally we used to start a story, we'd say long go. But this is, you know, normally a long time ago, we'd say long go. So this story is a bit different. So this is a Shanahus. So a Shanahus isn't like um, a Shanaki. So it's um, how you tell a story that link in local names and history. Whereas it's uh, a Shanahus is more, you're telling the story in a conversational way. Um, so in other words, feel free to join in and ask questions, or if I'm going way off the mark, jump in. It's not like that you're gonna stop me mid-flow. Uh, so this is the local folklore version of, um, your, you, you would be familiar, and I'm sure a lot of people listening to your podcast would be very familiar with the story of Lou Lafada and the fight against Balor and the, the, the battles at Mauchura, whereas this story has all taken place locally here. So, so Balor uh, was a warlord of the Fomorians and he's vividly remembered um, by tradition in Ireland. In some places, they frighten children with Balor's name, but Tory Island, it's just embedded like, you know, so you could say, oh, but wouldn't he be embedded um, in Kong in uh, where the last Battle of Moitura took place? But Tory Island, there's a written text. It's the first written text outside of mythology. So we'll say the first place name in mythology, in Irish written mythology, in our ancient annuals is uh, Tory Island, right? So Tory is obviously a very special spot if it's going to be the first place mentioned, right? But Balor um, is very, very linked in with Tory. So this version is um, was taken by dictation in 1835. 
So it would have been said in Irish, and this would have been translated into English. So the, it is by Shane O'Doon, from, um, whose ancestor is said to have been living on Tory Island in Colum Kill's time. So Colum Kill is now we're doing the anniversary of 1,500 years. So the ancestry on, on Tory Island of, of Shane goes right, right back. So this story is, you know, it, 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 um, like it accounts for the names of places, uh, historical characters, and the story is founded on facts, but um, from having floated on the tide of tradition for maybe 3,000 years. So I'll just start reading the story. <laughs> right. So, okay. So <clears throat> in days of yore, there flourished three brothers, Gavda, Maksuhan, and Makalili. We would know him locally as Kian Makanili. So these brothers, these three brothers, um, the first whom is the distinguished smith who held his forge at Drumnatina, which is just down here for me. In Irish, Drumnatina is the hill of fire. So it alludes to Gavda's furnace. So McGinley, Gavda's brother, was the lord of that district and possessed a cow called the Glass Galvin, which translates as the cow of plenty. So this cow would give milk and give milk and give milk. So it was desired, the cow was desired by all um, McGinley's, I'm going to start saying Cian. So Cian was the lord of the district, possessed a cow called Glasgowan, which was desired and admired by neighbours and everyone in the area. So many attempts ha- were made at stealing the cow. So Cian found it very necessary to watch the cow constantly. Um, so uh, at this same remote period, flourished on Tory, the island lying across from Drum, Drum the Tinny, um, which received this name. Tory Island has nothing to do with the English Tory party. So the reason Tory's got its name is because it's got a Tory appearance, right, from the la- mainland. So you're going out there, there's like sharp crags. So like when you walk on the island, there's like crags called like Kathleen's Teeth, which was Ballard's wife. So like that's hilarious. Everything, oh, yeah, it's fantastic, <laughs> isn't it? Like um, so everything when you're it's it's just sharp points, you know, so it's got that name. So it's like it's it's sharp points towering into the sky, you know, so it's a tor, you know, so it's a tors. It's so it's, it's Tory. Um, so Tory, you could spell it like T-H-U-R and then R-I father. Right. So. um. Of course, on Tory, we had Balor, right? So Balor had one eye in the middle of their forehead and the other is directly opposite on the back of their skull, okay? So the latter eye, by its full distorted glances, so they would strike people dead, Balor, that is, uh, with their eye. And for that reason, Balor kept it constantly covered, except when he wished to get the better of their enemies by petrifying them with looks and hence the Irish to this day call an evil or overlooking eye by the name of Sul Balor. Sul meaning eye. Um, but though possessed of such power, powers of self-defense, it appears that it had been revealed to a druid that Balor should be killed by his own grandson. Now, there are other stories here locally that there was three druids and of course we know three will always come into our little stories and that Balor peered in as a, a young child and it, you kind of think oh this innocence of a young child you know but normally it's like Balor is the baddie you know and it's like but sometimes there's little kind of mm, 
glimpses of like okay there were there were there, there was um there was emotions in there too you know because i think it's very easy to look at something very just like okay goodies and baddies you know but it's not it's obviously never as simplistic as that so um right i've got i've lost my place in the page i have to get back to the page. i'm jumping <laughs> off of the page all the time i should really go okay so where are we okay so the druids told balor that um they would be killed by their own grandson so at this time balor had one child, a daughter called Etna. Um, so Etna, um, and some people would say Enya. And it's, again, it's different dialects, you know, and again, some of my Irish won't be Ulster because I'm originally from Munster. Okay, so Etna on the island. Um, jeepers, I've jumped, I've lost my place in the page again. Okay, I, I should just start reading for a while. Well, about, hold on, uh, you said you're not a scholar, but I would say you're definitely a scholar because you keep interrupting yourself with footnotes, which is definitely okay. scholarly. Okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, right, Etna. Okay, so you picture Etna, right, on the tower. Okay, so Balor's only child is daughter Etna, right? So Balor, seeing that she was the one true his destruction could be sought, he shut her up in an impregnable tower, which he himself or some of his ancestors had built some time before on the summit of Tormor. And the tower was in, in an inaccessible rock, which shooting into the blue sky breaks roaring waves and confronts the storms at the eastern extremity of the island. And here he also placed a company of 12 matrons to whom he gave the strictest charge not to allow any man near her or give her an idea of the existence of nature of sex. Here, the fair Etna remained a long time imprisoned, and though confined within the limits of a tower, tradition said that she expanded into bloom and beauty. She often questioned the matrons about the manner in which she herself was brought into existence, and of the nature of the beings that she saw pressing up and down the sea in Corks. In Ulster, we'd say Cora. To have heard this in Irish would have been beautiful, like of saying, like what what brought me into existence? What you know what I mean? That, that like it would be lovely to have the original Irish on this. But you know, anyway. Um, so she often related to these in her dreams of other beings and other places and other enjoyments, which went around in her imagination while locked up in the arms of repose. But the matrons, faithful to their trust, never offered a single word in explanation of those mysteries which enchanted her imagination. In the meantime, Balor continued his business of war and violence, subdued and cast in chains many an adventurous band of sea rovers and made many a descent upon the opposite continent. But his ambition could never be um, satisfied until he would get possession of the most valuable cow, the Glasgowvin, the cow of plenty. One day, Cian, went to his brother's forge to get some swords made. The Gavda, who of course we all are very familiar with as being the blacksmith, and took with him the invaluable Glasgalvan by the halter, which he constantly held in his own hand by day and by which um, she was tied and secured by night. When arriving at the forge, he entrusted her to sh- into the care of his brother, Maxuan, who it appears was there too on some business connected with war and entering the forge himself to see the sword properly shaped and steeled. But while he was there, Balor, assuming the form of a red-haired boy, came to Mac Soen, who told him that he heard his two brothers, Gavda and Cian McNeely, saying, within at the furnace they would use 
Maxon steel in making Cian McGinley's swords and would make of his own iron. I'm going to stop there because that's going to get confusing with so many names. So basically, Balor came over as a red-haired child, went in with a little excuse just to try and get the cow away. Okay. So after telling Maxon this, Maxon said, okay, he said, I'll let them know that I'm no that I'm not to be humbugged so easily. Hold this cow, my little red-haired uh, little friend, and you'll see how soon I'll make them alter their intention. With that, he rushed into the forge in a passion and swearing by all powers above and below that he would make his two brothers pay for the dishonesty. Balor, as soon as he got the halter of the cow into his hand, carried off the glass into the rapidity of the lightning of Tory Island, and the place where he dragged her by the tail to this day is called Port Naglas. So it's uh, Port of the Cow, um, or, the, or, or, the har- or the harbour of the Green Cow. Then Cian McGinley heard his brother's exclamations. He knew immediately that Balor had ran off with the cow. Cian, after he had given full vent to his passions, he called to an old druid. So Cian went to speak to the old druid, um, who lived not far from the place and consulted him upon the matter. The druid told him that the cow could never be recovered as long as Balor was living, for that in order to keep her, he would never close the venomous eye, but petrify every man that could venture to get near her, the cow. So Cian McNeely, however, had a lanshee, which would be like a fairy figure, um, uh, called Burog of the Mountain, uh, who undertook to put him in the way of bringing out the destruction of Balor. So Burog was going to bring Cian to, to the island to get the cow. So Burog, after dressing Cian uh, in the clothes worn by ladies in that age, she wafted him, wafted him. I would more kind of associate with farts, really, but it's obviously the language back then. They wafted <laughs> him on the wings of the storm. So uh, they went across the sound to the airy top of Tormor, and there, knocking on the door of the tower, demanded admittance for, the, for a noble lady, the matrons, fearing to disoblige the banshee, again, the banshee they're referring to, Burrog, admitted both into the tower. Soon as the daughter of Balor beheld the noble lady, thus introduced, she recognised countenance like one of which she had frequently felt enamoured in her dreams, and tradition said that she immediately fell in love with her noble lady guest. Shortly after this, the banshee, by her supernatural influence over human nature, laid the 12 matrons asleep. Could you imagine hearing this in Irish? Um, uh, and Cian, having left the fair daughter of Balor pregnant. So Etna now is pregnant by Cian, who owned the cow on the mainland. So, um, so Cian was invisibly carried back by Borog, this friendly sprite, sprite, it says here, to Drumnatini, the hill of fire. So the matrons awoke, they persuaded Etna the, the appearance of Burrog was only a dream, but told her not to ever mention it to her father and the noble lady. Thus did matters remain until the daughter of Balor brought forth three sons at birth, um, which then Balor discovered he would immediately secure the offspring and sent them rolled up in a sheet, which was fastened with a, a delig or a pin um, to be cast into the certain whirlpool. But they were carried across a small harbour on the way to it, Delig fell out of the sheet and one of the children dropped into the water and 
here in this area on Tory, they call it like Port Delig. So it's on the very right. If anyone ever goes to Tory Island, it's on the very, very right. And there, like some of the Corks will go into Port Delig still. And it would be very rough waters now um, over that area. So the child who went into the water in this local folklore version went back to Gavda the Smith and then started learning the trade. And then uh, they became so good at it that Bridget, the goddess of the poets, I'm quoting now, um, thought not beneath her dignity to preside over the smiths also. So Bridget became the goddess of the smiths. Balor came over to get Cian. So Balor and his fierce band of associates seized upon Cian McAneely, laying his head on a large white stone, one holding him upon it by his long hair and the others by the hands and legs, cut off his head clear with one blow of his sword. The blood flowed in warm floods and penetrated the stone to its very centre. This stone with its red veins still tells the deeds of blood. The stone they're referring to is a ma- it's, it's like it's a massive quartz stone um, that there's a, like a rustic mark on the top of the stone. So like kids here when they're in school, they would like run around it holding hands and you can make wishes and all this. So it became a big thing. And the area here is Clohanili, right? So it's Clohanili. So it's um, Neely, it's Kian. It's our buddy Kian in the story. Um, so it's like the head. So you could say Kian Makanili. So it's the head of Makanili. So the whole area here is named after this event, you know. But the heir of Makanili in the course of time, grew up to be an able man and being an excellent smith, Balor, who knew nothing of his birth, became greatly attached to him. The heir of McAneely, who was well aware of his father's faith with the history of his own birth and escape from destruction, was observed to indulge in gloomy fits of despondency and frequently to visit the bloodstained stone to return from it with a sudden brow, a sullen brow, one day Balor came to the forge to get some spears made. In the course of that day, Balor happened to mention with pride his conquest of McAneely, but to his own great misfortune for the young smith watched his opportunity and taking a glowing rod from the furnace, thrust it in through the evil eye of Balor and out through the other side of his head, thus avenging the death of his father, slaying his grandfather, executing the decree of fate, which nothing can avert. Now, that story, Balor gets killed in the forge at Drumnatini, but the other local version, we have um, a glen here, right? So we have Errigal Mountain, which has that very pointy tip again, you're back to that tour, like it's reaching the skies, you know. Um, some people would associate that with Lou. So, um, Right uh, on the foot of Errigal, there's an area and it's called the Poison Glen, right? And in the Poison Glen, locally, that's where we say the battle, which would be in our history, um, our written history of where Moitura took place. But the battle took place in this Poison Glen. And there's an area called uh, um, Bloody Foreland, Nokfola, uh, um, where Lou is said to have cast a spear from Knockfold at Bloody Foreland, hitting to Balor here in the Poison Glen. And the reason it's called the Poison Glen is the ooze of the venom of, of Balor's eye went all around the glen. And That's there's a cool. stone, like massive boulder split in half, which they say is Balor's eye after, you know, getting tired and that this ooze and the poison. But it's a beautiful glen. It's a beautiful glen. 
you know. Oh, that's so fantastic. It makes me want to go there to see the story in place. I mean, you'll have to sometime yeah, if you can. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. That was such a cool story. <laughs> I think I it's the landscape really gets brought in all the time. So the island has always been very um, spiritual and it's very linked in with, again, I my interest is pre-Christian, but it would be very linked in with uh, St. Colm Kill as well. And again, you have this thinking, I'm not into it myself, but it's that kind of um, Celtic Christianity. So they would see um, Colm Kill almost like a continuation of Lou. So we'd say Colm Kill would his mother was also called Etna and Colm Kill is from up the road here in Garden. I don't know, like they always talk about Colm Kill and their knowledge of herbs and of course the link into that they were like friendly to the Picts in Scotland and that they were almost like the sort of um pagan monk. E- each to their own on that one, you know. <laughs> Yeah, it's really interesting to see how the Celtic Christianity was a, a, a stage of merging between the two worlds for a while. Um, but I also want to say thank you so much for like really localizing this story. I think that's that's what's so interesting to me is that this is a a story in place, and like many um, you know indigenous wisdom systems that I know of. Um, the the cosmology is told through story um, landmarks and 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 places in the myth that have like physical representations. Absolutely, yeah. It's like mm. I would be very much into mountain walking and that. And it's when you're walking along the mountains here, Tory Islands is very prominent. It's very like you might be taken up and you might come up onto a ridge. You know, you're you're just looking at kind of just hillside. And you just see this island, like you'd know its importance, that this was important. So it's kind of, um, you know, we don't have all money to be traveling to wherever we want to go, you know. But it it is, I think it is important to mention place names and things, you know, really is. Oh, it's essential. I mean, there's so many really valuable pieces to the way that you share this story because you're weaving in multiple languages what i love about it too is there are timelines of when stories are told but they're changed they change naturally over time just as land does and there's such a beautiful way of re-enchanting stories through telling it with the relationship of land and i love the work that uh you and lucy do because it's so much about um how do we become connected to land in a way that we are part of it, right? Like you are actually part of the story because you live in this place that you're telling it from. You can, you not only can see these places in your mind's eye, and that's why you're moving your body and sharing also with an embodied expression. Um, but also, you know, the feeling of this place you know, the energetics of this place. These places are not dead. They're living places. Um, and that it, the story t- is told in such a living way because it's from a place of land um, and a place that you belong to, right? The place. Um, and it's so interesting how language, even between 
your encultured language of English versus our encultured language of English, like even mountain walking, is that the same as hiking or is that like a different thing? Um, well, maybe um, it's, it's hiking, but you know, <laughs> I, don't, I don't have a big backpack. I, I live here in the mountains. So it's kind of right. to, to describe the landscape. I, I know if you go to a lot of places, you will have mountains and then you have to go miles down, but mm. here it's smaller. So we have the mountain range here and then there's the ocean and that, you know what I mean? So it's, it's a lot nearer. So um, I thought by saying hiking, people might picture me with some big backpack and sticks and all that. Uh, no, I'm just, I'm just walking up, up the road there. Yeah, you know got what I mean? some sandals on. Yeah. yeah. Maybe <laughs> yeah, no shoes yeah. at all. Oh yeah, of course. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Staff as well, of course. Yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. With the crystals on top. <laughs> an eye. There's an eye on it. <laughs> Yeah. You no, know, it's funny you say that. I think sometimes the stories become Lord of the Rings and it becomes cosplay. It becomes all that kind of scene. And it's like, no, 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 let, let's take it back. You know what I mean? That these places are real and they exist, you know, and, and it is um, it's it's important then, isn't it? And, and like you you have um, with a lot of people. It's not just me. Like there's a lot of people who are reclaiming these words and, and looking into these old Irish words, you know, and going, oh, this means this, this means this. And and then, of course, you link in of like, you know, Maeve is so prominent in a lot of the places as well. And of course, it would be very easy to say, oh, yeah, you know, Maeve represents land and blah, blah, blah. But it's it's much more than that. Like it's it's people's belief systems, you know. Um, so it's like when when people believe so heavily into something like Maeve would have doesn't just represent land like she represents the whole space you know as well it's not just Maeve now again like the worship of so getting back to that story obviously we all know the child in that story was Lou Lovefather Lou's name if you notice was never mentioned once right so um and even the Tua de Danon wasn't mentioned you know because they're telling the story of like oh yeah you know the the family who lived over there from the Tinna and this is, you know, it's a lot more if you were telling a story about someone who lived down the road from you. And that's so I think it's a lot of its beauty. It's not saying, oh, you know, Lou, the god of light or any of this kind of thing. It's it's very um, it's, it's localized and which which is a, a real beauty to it, because like what you're saying, it, you know, it, it makes it real. I also love that in true folklore, like there's multiple different versions and they're all the right one. And they might even contradict each other. And I think that that really defines what a living tradition is versus I think when a tradition is dead, it's codified into some kind of like, this is the one version of the story. And um, yeah. Thanks. There's, I find there's stuff I see on the internet. Um, there's kind of like set rules. And I see it a lot with um, fairy belief. So... The set rules is like, no, fairies are not such and such and blah, blah, blah. And you can't say this and you can't say that. And it's like, so where I live, there's huge fairy belief. So you have people who would um, just make jokes all day. You know, that really kind of piss takey kind of person who's just like, ah, and you take nothing seriously what they say or, you know, they are very, um, you know, part of the roman catholic church or whatever but because of where they're from that fairy belief is instilled it's still in them so we'll say i was at work one day i was working with some um so because i live near the islands so the the first language would be irish so 
there was um he said i don't want to say names because you know what i mean I, but anyway this person i knew a fisherman from the island was um we were talking and we were, we were talking i i'm also a current builder um so he's so we we're talking about kirks or kuras okay depending on where you're from so the um we we're talking and then he started telling me the story um of how he nearly drowned so they were in the boat they went in and then they were saying um they were going down and like it was the first kind of um most serious conversation we had ever had you know um before it was always very light like so they started going on about how they started going down 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 and then they started seeing light and then they said they heard the music of the she and then they were saying my mother always told me once you hear the fairy music you're done you know so they were saying i have to go this other direction and like there's not a smirk there's not it, it's just like you know it's a near-death experience and then what you know their mother mother before them their guardians whatever before them had told them these stories you know um there's another one another uh older elderly person i know um they told me they used to be involved in the uh building construction so they were building um a house now there's an age-old one that you'll hear around ireland but they were building a house and um there was everything was going wrong the foundations as they were building there was like stuff like the cement wasn't drying there was all these different things and uh they're down the pub an older guy at the road was saying um you're on a ferry path um of course these things are going to happen and like they said it of like you know isn't this obvious you know and again anyone else in 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 our modern or supposedly modern thinking would say ah you know um but they were saying, okay, let's move it slightly to the right. And of course, the house is fine. No other problems. And wow. these are people that they're, they're not pagans. They're not, there's, there's nothing like that. It's just like there's a, a famous quote uh, that said around in Ireland that it's like, you just have to scratch the surface. And there's, you know, that pre-Christian was always there. And it's like, that's fairy law. That's, that's fairy belief. And I, I wish people would stop defining it so i can understand we have to you know maybe define it somehow but not laying down rules and laws it it becomes now again when i when i say that you see it's it's gone into the new age spectrum as well where we're losing a lot of the old stories and a lot of the old culture so i understand why people define it so i like maybe i'm feeling guilty now saying that but it's just to define it so much is it's it's just it's it's killing it like you know because we're defining it from academia not from how it's lived you know that's so fantastic because you see that in other culture other cultures too where folks are either trying to reclaim or revive something and so because they personally have not inherited that lineage they then feel obligated to make that make it orthodox and that orthodoxy, I think, is where the killing is, um, and then you can that that can lead you into other kinds of conservatism, where you you believe that you're defending the pure or authentic version of whatever. Um, yeah, I've seen it before, and it can lead to some pretty problematic politics. But I think, like you're saying, you always have to go back to like. Who are the people who have inherited that living tradition? That seems to be 
like the authority on the subject. And so, but everybody's going to have multiple opinions about that. There's no, there's not going to be one orthodox way of defining that. There aren't necessarily rules in a book about it. I mean, that's the story of, of colonization, right? That's the, that's the end all story of the loss of relationship to land, the loss of relationship to culture, the loss of relationship to language. And I know you're not saying this, my, or not, none of us are saying that, um, that there's something inherently shameful about trying to reach towards um, having some type of lineage and trying to do it, quote unquote, right is a form of white supremacy, where it's like the right way or the perfect way um, doesn't exist because what has, what was is broken. And what we're trying to do as a as different cultures and communities is re remend that relationship. But unfortunately, it's not within relationship to nature. It's not in relationship to where where the language comes from. And it's it's a challenge, right? Because I think it's also just like how colonization is a form of trauma, reaching towards some kind of structure is a result of, of trauma, of violence and, um, and a lack of embodiment of that story or of that culture or of that heritage or religion or spirituality um, is from a, a separation Right. And, um, yeah. And it's hard to, as a person who has never heard this her story before and, you know, I'm like stumbling through trying to write, I'm like, how do I phonetically write these names down? You know, and, and I, it's a learning process and I've learned a lot of other languages, but, um, because of my own familial trauma and lineage of harm that's been done, I've had a lot of resistance, right. Um, and so learning through story has been really cool and really powerful and empowering. Um, and as a, as a mother, as someone who's raising a child and looking towards what are ways that communities have taught children themes of, of, of righteousness, of right relationship, of stewardship, of, um, how we treat one another, and even even in relationship with the fairy, right? In in the relationship with spirituality, how do we teach our children through story, through um, through prayer, through an, other means beyond just discipline? Um, because it's so inherent to indigeneity to tell through story, through through um, storytelling. And so, how do we weave that back in authentically? it's a challenge, right? It's a challenge. We're dancing with it. And, um, it's easy to do quote unquote wrong if there's a right way, like we were talking about. Um, and I also love how you weave in the language of webs of, of web research, right? Like that's its own language is trying to weave in what people are trying to sort out as what's right and wrong, how to say it from wherever you're from. And, I think it's the beauty is to stay in the play because that's what stories are. They're playful. They're flamboyant. They're um, they are trying to embody a sense of place and you're doing an incredible job of describing. I I'm envisioning myself with you walking mountain walking together barefoot through these places and looking at these. And I'm such a water person too. So I feel this deep connection of, 
um, these stories. And I'm also curious to hear more about, we kind of glaze over it, but the piece around like sexuality and coming into puberty and um, being protected, but how even that in and of itself is a, is a story for the parents of like, how do we, do we lock up our children so that they don't come into the world and have their rites of passage? Um, Cause that obviously didn't work in the story. So I'm curious about that piece too. Yeah, no, I hear you. Um, it's, it's kind of even uh, when it's in story, it's kind of like, it's, but could you say it was over overly protected of protection of the child of Etna? That's this overly protected. So Balor could have just killed you know, so you kind of go, oh, Balor, oh, bad, bad, bad. Um, but really, well, there's love there, you know. So it would have been very simple just to kill that. And their prophecy, done, no issues. But no true love, in a really messed up way, put them in a tower. And, you know, okay, you're not allowed to see anybody. But, like, it's obviously the wrong thing to do. No, it's true. I mean, as parents, we want to protect our children. Yeah. And simultaneously, I mean, she was having prophetic dreams. You know, I think that's a big part of too. It's like, and also this, there's almost a weaving. And I'm curious if this story was impacted by Christianity in the like desire and trying to like protect this child from desire and the dreams. And um, for me, I'm like, that's that's the potent piece is like this person was had their own you know we were talking about um what were you saying about the banshee that um about fate right and this child had their own fate you know and becoming into themselves on their own without um with a whole different community of women and then i was curious i was like so does that mean that was it kian kian yeah Ian, how he would he he was dressing as a woman to get there, right? Yeah, so I'm like, I was going to ask this question too. <laughs> his dream in her dream, did she see this person in a dress? Well, or, it's you know, it's it's funny you say that because um, I was reading the story beforehand. At no point does it say Etna saw a man. It actually, because I was kind of going, oh, I'm reading too much into it, but yeah, it's just yeah, saying yeah, yeah, yeah. there's noble wa- woman the whole time, actually, as well. Or, or noble lady, I think. Is I love word. it. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> I'd never noticed that before. Like, but it's just, oh, yeah, yeah. But you know, when you, you kind of reread something, like, oh, right, right. But yeah. again, I'm saying that there's, there's different versions, but yeah, mm-hmm. yeah it is one interesting. Of, one of them is a le- lesbian love story. So that's great. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I'm yeah. going with that one. I'm going with that one. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh. Well, I want to go back to what you said earlier in that when it comes to the internet's the internet's feelings about fairy belief, and there's something there um, which I feel really interesting in that if we're trying, as I am, um, to get back to like a kind of paganism that is very rooted in the land, um, that there is easily because I think the new age has gone this direction you know kind of like universalizing things bringing them out of the context of the land um making things very accessible to place you know people from other places but at the same time like decontextualizing and unrooting spirituality from place and on the one hand you know 
that's not entirely horrible. And on the other hand, it's really allowing the new age to kind of like float in the stratosphere instead of saying grounded in the earth. And I don't know if you have any like opinions on how that's playing out where you are or what you see in the kind of spiritual communities where you, um, yeah, are seeing this play out at all. Yeah. Well, um, I, uh, should I be, will I try and be polite? <laughs> okay. I'll tell a story. Um, so, um, last year, uh, there's, there's a, a beautiful stone circle, um, called uh, Baltany Stone Circle, would also be known as Tops locally. And uh, Baltany Stone Circle, as you would imagine, it's very linked in with Baltany or Beltane, whichever you prefer to call it. Um, but there is alignments at different times a year. Um, so we went up there for the winter solstice. Now, I'd only ever gone to Baltany Stone Circle. I would go for uh, Baltany and uh may so um i went up this year and when i arrived it's a very very big stone circle um oh, i can't remember how many stones is it like 17 i can't remember but it's quite wide you know there's actually a belief that it could have been a carn like a like a, a passage carn like like uh bruna Bonia, like newgrange um so just to give you an idea of how wide the stone circle is so I arrived with some friends and uh, it was it was very early uh, in the morning to catch the sun, hit, hit the stone. Uh, one, one of the main stones, which there are markings on the sun hits. And there was a huge bonfire in the middle of the stone circle. And I was like, wait, now this isn't cool. And uh, I'd never seen someone do that before. I had seen people make little campfires where they were smashing bottles and stuff and my my friends and myself, we would just tidy it up and just, you know, say nothing, whatever, just anyway. So this, but this was a bonfire, right? So there was um, a person there. <laughs> Look at me trying to be all careful. <laughs> the, the, there was a person there um, who um, is from the UK and they said, um, they, they said, right, everybody. Everyone, you cannot touch the stones, and we have to go anti-clockwise around the outside of the stones. That's bollocks to this. So I, I, I leaned against the stone. Now I, I would be like, I would be quite shy. I wouldn't be confrontational. Um, so I just leaned against the stone, not in a kind of like, yeah, come on. It was just like I just leaned against the stone of like, oh, come on, you know, get off the stage, like. And so everyone, you see, because I, I think a lot of people. You know, when when you visit some of the megalithic sites, and certainly during like uh, solstice, you know, you kind of go, well, "What do I do?" You know, you know, will I just take it in as an individual and just take in the moment, or you know, will I go and do something nice with a group? So I can understand why everyone followed this person, um, but it was ridiculous. Like it was, it was just complete. Um, it was like they went to drama school. You know, it was just. <laughs> It's like bong bong. I don't know what they were saying uh, or what this person was saying. And they had a following. And to me, it was just, it was completely ego. Like, come everybody, follow me. You know, I know the way. And uh, yeah. they went back. And my main concern was this bonfire. And uh, I wanted to put it out, but I didn't want the confrontation. You know, I didn't want like this could go not get nasty. Um so um, I said I would talk to the person nicely and get to know them. And my plan was, I was, I was hatching a plan as they're all walking around. I was like going, 
what could I do? Because rather than trying to say, hey, you can't do that, of like, okay, they want to do this. And I was kind of thinking if, if there was like a metal plate, if I could supply this person with a large metal plate or some sort of bowl or, you know, this was, I was trying to be nice and that they could, they wouldn't cause damage for future generations. Yeah. So I went up and I said, um, I just said, hi, my name's Sean, blah, blah, blah. You know, you know, who are you? I am the Druid of Ulster. Good. Uh, just, you know, where at that point, you're just like, Oh, gee. And you're still trying to be nice, but it's getting tough. And oh, wow. That's where the wafting comes in. Oh, yeah. Then, there you go. The wafting. <laughs> waft them away. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So uh, you've distracted me now. The, uh, the, um, so, uh, yeah. So then they went, um, I said, oh, Druid of Ulster, is, is it a, a group or who, who made you Druid of Ulster? Like, and, uh, the Druids of Mead. Which Druids of County Mead are you referring to? <laughs> the Mo- Druids of Mead. And you're just like, what? Like, you know, it's... it's um, So I was trying to sort of talk and I was saying, you know, w- would you have any contact or a Facebook group? Because what I wanted was to say, like, w- and suggest about using a metal plate or something that would protect the, the ground from this fire. You know, rather than saying, you can't do this. So, um... There, there was two other people there kind of held this person back and they were like, no, don't give them any information. You're like, okay. You know, like that there were some sort of secret agents or I don't know. And I like, again, I have to stress, I was, I was being very polite and very nice. There was nothing confrontational about it. And um, then they walked away and there's this huge bonfire going and they, yeah. And I can't tell you that like the, the, anger i felt and then right. see people are kind of around it so they're all kind of dancing around the fire and you're like so at this point i just said it sent to friends when like, we have to put this out we, we like have to put this out yeah um, and i can guarantee you now on winter sauces tuesday i'm not going um but it'll be the same thing you know and it, it's like we do have people who like there is a person um i can say her name actually so she's mary hart and um they live just around the corner and, and they're, you could refer to them as like a gatekeeper. And, and I like talking to them. They're like they're really, they have a lot of knowledge and they've tried to stop them. And, and again, in a very, in a very polite way, you know, um, but it's getting, sorry, getting back um, like to your, to your question uh, was um, about new age and it's stuff like that. It's stuff like that. Just, it takes the knowledge away. You know, it's like the, the stone circle I'm on about uh, Baltany, it like, it goes right back. There's like, even in the Roman Catholic church, there is records of people right into the 1800s. There was two people doing a pagan ritual caught in the act. Um, and it's in the, the papal documents. It was sent to the, to Rome. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> um, and you're going, so like this place, it's like, I would love to know what, what they were doing in the 1800s there. You know what I mean? It, it would just like, you know, but whereas what we might remember as, as people visiting there now is this person claiming to be the Druid of Ulster, you know? It's it's like the New Age thing. Um, I suppose I could go off on, 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 on a tangent here, but like it's, it's um, you know, each to their own, right? I'm not saying I know it all or anything like that. And I... 
like I, I just see it going off and it certainly since um since COVID and all that, right? Now I'm not gonna go into a COVID discussion, you know, but it's a case of like I do think it's a case of <laughs> whatever you choose to believe, right? That's fine, okay? But don't walk with the right wing in your belief. So here, which is something that like I would have never thought I'd see the day is people who would be kind of left wing, whatever you want to call it, um, walking with the right wing. So here in Ireland, we have, I know, like, you know, normally in podcasts, I've been told I'm dividing people by talking about this, right? So I've also been told that I'm afraid of men more masculine than me. What else have I done? Yeah, fuck you and your pronouns. What else was I told? Um, and you're going, I didn't even mention pronouns. What are you talking about? Wow. But when I bring up this subject, the hate that you receive, mm. the, really, the, the main thing that I got was you're dividing people. And I'm not dividing people. Hmm. Um, but basically, I'll go back to the point. So what I see and witness is people, okay, Again, you know, I, everyone has the right to protest, you know, and I would, you know, I would protest about that. Do you know what I mean? Like, it, it is like, of course, you know, I, I have nothing against people having the right to protest. But if you're walking down, you know, hand in hand with the right wing, then I have major, major issues against you. Now, they will, these groups, and I'm not going to mention the names because then it just kicks it all off, you know. Here in Ireland, so again, I suppose people want when you're talking about Ireland and mythology that that it's almost like that we're working for the tourist board. I'm not, you know what I mean. So it's good to show like, no, Ireland isn't great and it's not brilliant and it's not like in mythology. There are some great things here, but we also like every country have a nasty element. Now, when I talk, when I say this, they are very, very small groups. You know what I mean? They, but they seem to shout the loudest sometimes. You know. I love what you're speaking to because it's so much of what we navigate as white settlers and white settler Americans is harm, right? It's like how in intent versus impact and um, cultural appropriation and all of the layers that comes with us trying to, um, but also within the movement of trying to dismantle white supremacy and Um, look at the ways that we are all colonized and how do we decolonize the way that we are in relationship to land and in relationship to even ourselves and our inter interpersonal relationships how do we navigate that and what always happens is that when you rock the boat that needs to be rocked because there is it's a boat of harm that's perpetuating behaviors that are about controlling other people and separating people and um, really about perpetuating that like capitalist mentality, that's when you become blamed, right? Like the finger gets point back at you. So I also congratulate you and appreciate you and know that you're doing the right thing. If the people who are causing the harm are pointing the finger back at you, that means that you're doing something right. You're saying something that is ruffling the feathers of the, of people who have power and Power is choice. Choice is power, right? So when we choose, 
I've been in situations around a fire where culty behavior is happening, where people are following the person with the drum, following the person with the drum. And they're like going in the circle around the fire, going in the circle around the fire. And it is, it's intense. It's intense. And it's like, for me, I'm such a nonconformist in a way that's like, I'm very dramatic, let me tell you. But when I see that shit, I'm like, I need to actually disrupt this situation. Like, I'm like, come on, band of like rebel radicals. Like, let's change the drum beat. Let's change the drum beat. You know, I just jump right in. And then, you know, the woman with the drum, like, st- I stare down. You know, it's like, no, let's go. And then in the end, it's like, I can't change this culty behavior. Like, if I'm not joining it, I need to just like, find my crew and make my own, you know, make my own drum beat somewhere else. But I think the beauty of telling story from a really land-based place is that the feedback loop is so small, you know, like you're so intentional about whose words, whose names that you share, because you're going to see that person at the grocery store, you know, like you're going to see this person, that person knows your mother, you know, it's like this really like, I, I don't know if that person knows your mother, but it's, it's that way we've, I recently moved to the first rural place in the U.S. I've ever lived in in Vermont. It is like that. You know, I had to learn real quick because, you know, I'm a diva, so I like to say some shit sometimes. But you got to be careful in small towns what you're saying, you know, unless you're willing to back that up, you know. And I think that's the same with land where, like, you better know I've done harm where I've harvested plants that did not give consent and I've had to do reconciliation. I've, I've had to remediate those relationships because I was being greedy or following my ego and not honest, not listening with honesty. And, um, they would tell you, you know, the ancestors are speaking, the wind is holding the language at every moment. Um, and that's why I love that story about the fairies is like, oh, you're just not listening. Like you can hear the, you need to turn the fuck around. Like you can hear them singing. You know, it's like, that is the truest form of listening, of actually hearing our ancestors speaking to us. And yeah, I just really appreciate because it's, it is, um, I think desire can get confusing when, because we want to belong, right? Like a lot of the new age storyline is like, you belong, which is the same with the Treppy stories, the QAnons. It's like, you belong here. And people just want to belong. Um, but if you're not careful, if you're not using discernment, then you're actually not listening to a truth. You're listening to really lies. And um, if you're not raised with with culture and with those those righteous stories, then it's easy to be held astray and get lost. So it's, it's exciting to be having these conversations about, and even I love the, your description of the gatekeeper and how we really need that. We need to be honoring those people and naming those people and appreciating the labor that they put in to um, holding, holding right relationship with land and teaching how to, how to be in that place as well. So Thank you for sharing that. Oh, thank you. I, I like what you said. Um, it's you know what I mean. It's about uh, you nearly want to make people feel awkward and perhaps even awkward yourself and question like even when you're saying about decolonization, things like that. It's it's awkward questions of like don't sit too comfortably there, mate. You know what I mean? It's like <laughs> you know not everything's perfect. So it is a case of um, 
I don't know if you if you find yourself too comfortable, maybe start questioning. <laughs> you know, um, it's just um, like getting back to to these parties uh, and what they represent. So that they've gone up to the hill of Tara. So we'll say a lot of these people would see. Um, so you would have people like just confused with the whole idea of Irish republicanism. You know what I mean? And it's just like you don't understand Irish republicanism if if that's what uh, you think these people represent. You know what I mean? They're 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 like homophobic, racist, fucking anti. You know what I mean? I, anyway, whatever their politics is, right? But it's like so you have we've had no celebrations on the hill of Tara um, that were we'll say not. They weren't celebrations of the season or the solstice or Baltina or anything like this. They're actually rallies, you know. So we'll say to me all year we've had rallies by the right wing saying that they were, oh, this is a homeless march. This is a, a march of the homeless. So you have people joining in and it's just like, look, if you believe in something, state what you believe in. Don't come in under the guise of something else. So that's what we've seen in the last while of um these marches so they'd be like oh what about the elderly during covid and all this but basically you have white wingers come down from these parties so that's what happened on the hill of tara and every time this comes up in discussion it turns into a conversation about covid and whatever else they're missing the point i completely believe in your right to protest and question always question everything but please be honest of what you're doing don't say this is a celebration of anything when at all it is it's a rally you know and it's just like you know i don't know do they understand words like empathy or kind of solidarity or unity because it to me it seems like they don't you know what i mean you're putting people in these situations that you know you've led them to believe one thing so just making people uncomfortable and of course it is it takes a lot to stand up and, and say that like what you were saying you know changing the drumbeat you know what i mean it, it's like that takes a lot of courage, you know, um, like I know you're joking saying diva and stuff, but it is, it's courageous. Like, you know, so it's kind of like, it takes a lot to stand up because you know, people are going, Oh, geez, they're ruining it for everybody, you know? And it's like, no, they're not ruining it for everybody. It's, it's, you know, it, it is about just thinking for yourself. And it is very easy to just sit back and go, ah, sure. I'll go with this. And sure. I don't know. It's, it's just, um, we always have to question, you know, I know maybe that's a very obvious thing to say, but people, think they are but they're just getting following what somebody else is saying really and going yeah yeah you know this is what i'm thinking <laughs> you know what i mean I, I don't know yeah yeah and in this country at least you know critical thinking skills are really no longer taught in schools uh so most people don't know when they're being manipulated especially by the media and also you know capitalists and the right wing have you know been spending billions of dollars every year for the last several decades um on propaganda and they've developed extremely uh, effective disinformation campaigns you know not just in the covid times but uh for a very long time and many people in the new age have gotten sucked into this without knowing it. Um, I, th I think that's largely because political literacy seems to be pretty low um, in a lot of new age population, which means that uh, people can't often tell when they're getting sucked into fascism or strange theories without evidence or some kind of weird cult. 
they just have no context for what even is fascism. And that's what I've seen a lot. Like even people just misusing that word, like literally not knowing what the definition of that word is. And <laughs> also I think that we were talking about belonging and I, I think that it does, like that's a big piece to it in that why are people getting sucked into these um, new age um, intersections with right wing stuff. And I think it's also a trauma response from being colonized because all like all Europeans are colonized people even though we might also be colonizers or people of European descent because we um, through exposure to you know colonial powers have had um, localized community identities erased and then replaced with whiteness and so people are now feeling that this whiteness is empty. There's actually nothing in that. <laughs> it's an empty term, and so they're looking for something else. But um, they they can end up doing that through maybe race politics or any kind of other purity politics and getting really attached to the idea of identity. And because race is a false identity that's very easily accessible... Um, people might go for that instead of like an identity that has to do with a community group or like a land relationship. Um, yeah, and that – so there's some really tricky thing about this like, um, you know, this traumatic erasure of identity due to colonization but also having no context for what colonization is and and like – what the traumas we have experienced are and how that leads us to various behavior patterns that actually perpetuate colonization. Um, and that's, so yeah, that's kind of a question, I guess, is like, how do we, on the one hand, realize that we do need to, um, uh, remember and and reclaim and kind of relearn who our people were before they were colonized and before they even became white, and at the same time not get sucked into uh, mind traps about like a purity of identity or um, that there's one correct way to worship the ancestors. You know that it's like a fine line. I wonder if you have any thoughts on that. This ends part one of our conversation with Sean Fitzgerald. In part two, we discuss how we can engage in reclaiming pre-colonial cultures and spiritualities and language without getting trapped by purity politics and also the importance of cultural consent from those communities who are holding lineages and who are protecting sacred places. We also talk about how to grapple with our own colonial behavior and avoid claiming innocence. And we compare New Age spirituality to kind of post-New Age spirituality in relationship to taking responsibility for our negative behavior. We talk about historical hybridity and cultural fluidity in our Irish ancestry and a lot more. You can follow Sean Fitzgerald on Instagram at Sean Fitzgerald Art and also support Arvid's journal. If you like this podcast, please like and subscribe. And uh, Patreon patrons get access to part two of this conversation immediately while um, we will release part two for everyone else in about two weeks. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you in part two.